0: Recently, I heard uh, well, and read uh, an article called, Is Your Church a Cruise Ship or Aircraft Carrier? Here are, some, uh, here are some excerpts that I gathered from this article. People who attend cruise ship churches, much like cruise ship passengers, often come to be entertained and catered by the staff. Very little is expected of these church attendees. In fact, they tend to rate the quality of their experience, the music, the sermon, and the way it made them feel. Much like cruise ship passengers rate their satisfaction with various aspects of their, of their trip. Cruise ship churches tend to be internally focused on the needs of their regularly attending members. The main goal in these churches as on a cruise ship, is to keep the customer happy and the complaints to a minimum. Leaders in a cruise ship church focus on the existing members rather than pursuing those far from God or encouraging others to do so. Very little of a church's calendar uh, training or communication is spent on activities to reach the lost or help those in need outside the church. There are, however, churches that are more like Aircraft carriers these churches are designed to empower all members to find their God-given purpose in life to equip them and to send them on missions into the world to reach and serve those who don't know Jesus, much like the crew of an aircraft carrier is all about launching military planes and equipping them well to carry out successful missions. Did you know, and I know one person probably knows this who's with us today, did you know? An aircraft carrier is the same size as many cruise ships. They house thousands of people. But what distinguishes an aircraft carrier ship isn't its size, it's it's, it's the efficiency on the flight deck. The crew of an aircraft carrier can launch a plane every 25 seconds, all in a fraction of the space of a typical landing strip. And the mission pervades every, every aspect of the ship. From the pilot to the person who restocks the ship's vending machines, everyone on a carrier knows his or her particular role in how it supports the mission. To equip, to prepare, to launch and receive aircraft back from their crucial assignments. An aircraft carrier church has a clear mission that stems from the great commandment and the great commission. Everyone in the church knows why their church exists and plays a role in the mission. Now, I don't believe we have ever been a cruise ship church, but I do think we are striving to be an aircraft carrier church, one who's ready to send out, one who's ready to grow and to work together and to continue to improve on that, and probably one of the smallest aircraft carrier churches around. But regardless, moving towards that direction, becoming that, and, you know, it's a privilege to serve on the flight deck here of the USS HVCC, Happy Valley, uh, as, we, as we live on mission, as we engage our community, as we strive to be a, a place where God's love changes lives. And not just this location, but as you also, too, strive to be that messenger of God's love, to see People's lives changed because of your communication of God's love in people's lives as well. And if any of you have been on a cruise, I know some have been on a cruise before. I, I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It, it's, I've never been on one. I'm sure it's pretty magnificent. Uh, I just wouldn't want our church to become one. So we're beginning a brand new uh, series this weekend. And uh, today we kick it off, and going through until Easter, uh, it's journeying through Mark's gospel. And so we're going to go through this gospel, and probably won't hit every verse. Uh, each Sunday, though, we'll look at some portion of each chapter of, of Mark all the way up till Easter. Now, last time we did this, uh, 11 years ago, I was able to co-preach with Mark. And we had a great time going back and forth each Sunday. And he took a chapter and I took a chapter and we decided what portion of the chapter we would preach on because there's a lot there to be able to communicate and share. So we didn't cover it all. So here we are again and looking to hopefully cover some new ground in the Gospel of Mark. So let's kick it off with the very first verse and, and then we'll, we'll look at some of the unique elements of Mark. So if you haven't yet, grab your Bibles or your phones and get to your app for your Bible app and uh, look at chapter 1, verse 1 of Mark. Just right there, the very first verse there. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. That's interesting that Mark starts with the launch of Jesus' formal ministry. Unlike Matthew and Luke who begin with the birth narrative. They, they speak about Jesus' birth. The word beginning can refer to the cause or, or head of something. And Jesus is before all things, as John chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning was the word. The word beginning can also refer to the start of something like a road, like we are journeying in this Gospel of Mark. It's the beginning of this series. At a deeper level, Mark is telling us that he is about to begin something brand new, much like Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. So we get this introduction in this way that something incredible is about to happen. And gospel, the word gospel, literally means the good news. Of course, you understand that, that God has provided salvation for everyone through the the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel. And the use of this word would have surprised his readers in at least two ways. For those with a Jewish background or an understanding of the Old Testament, they would have been stunned uh, because they would have thought of a verse like Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, where we read of the coming of God to a people who have been in exile. And that, that portion of Scripture says, "...how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness." who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. For those from a Roman background, they would, have, would associate uh, the word gospel with some significant event that would have changed world history, like the, the birth of, of an heir to, to the emperor. One historical inscription reads like this, it says, the birthday of Augustus was the beginning for the world of the good news that come to men through him an event, a huge event that would take place. Not only was the, the word gospel a powerful word, it also came to be known as a, a literary genre. The, the, there are different types of, of literature that make up the different sections of the Bible. I spoke about this before in a previous uh, series of, of messages. But in the Old Testament, we encounter law, we encounter history, we encounter poetry, and The major prophets and the minor prophets. In the the New Testament, it contains the gospel, uh, the the gospels, the church history, the letters, as as well as prophecy. And we commonly say that there there are four gospels, but really there's only one one gospel of, of, of and about Jesus Christ. It's better to say that we have four accounts of the good news about Jesus Christ. And even one paraphrase of verse 1 in Mark chapter 1 puts it like this, the beginning of the preaching of the joyful tidings. <laughs> Mark wastes little time by getting to the identity of his subject in this verse. He uses, he's using three names and titles here. Now I want to just briefly touch on these. We see his person uh, as he gives the title Jesus. Jesus is his given name, which in Hebrew is Yeshua which means Yahweh is salvation. And the angel of the Lord told Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So his name is descriptive of his mission. So his person, Jesus, his position found in the title of Christ. Christ is a Greek title for Messiah, which means anointed one. The question of Jesus' identity is the is the hinge point of the book. If you look at Mark chapter 8, verse 29, it says, And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And everything written before this confession of Christ focuses on Jesus as servant. And the verses that follow set the scene for his work as Savior. It's really the, the hinge of the book and the hinge of our lives. Peter confessed Jesus as Christ, and the question is for you: Have you confessed Jesus as Christ? And then we have his position in the title that's mentioned here as the Son of God. This bold title conveys a, a full divine status. <laughs> and if you look at Mark chapter one verse eleven, it says, "And a voice came from heaven." You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And then in in chapter 3, verse 11, tells us that when demons saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the son of God. We also see this in the centurion soldier's confession in Mark chapter 15, verse 39. And if Peter's confession is the hinge point of the book, this, this military man's declaration is the high point of the book. In verse 39 of Mark chapter 15, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he, he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So, let's look at the person of Mark. Who is this guy that's writing this gospel? There's never been any serious question regarding the human author of this, this gospel. His official name was uh, John Mark. John was his Hebrew name, which means grace of God. And Marcus was his Roman name, which means the hammer. I guess we could call him the hammer of God's grace. And whenever it was time for God's grace, it was hammer time. Break. Right. Okay. Never mind. Moving on. His mother's name, his mother's name was Mary, and she owned a large home in Jerusalem. We don't know anything about his father. Maybe Mark's, Mark's mom was a, a single mom, single parent. But Peter, who was like a father to Mark, led him to faith in Christ and mentored him as a man. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter calls Mark his son. Although Mark was not one of the, the 12 disciples, he learned about the Lord through Peter. And there are, are two highlights, or I guess you'd probably call them lowlights, actually. From Mark's life that are worth mentioning here, first is that he fled from Jesus. <laughs> he fled from Jesus. Uh, on the night before Jesus was crucified, um, in Mark chapter 14, verses 51 through 52, gives us an, an autobiographical comment here. He says, "And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked." So while Peter ended up denying Jesus, Mark ditched him. And so that's one aspect of, uh, that we know of here uh, of, of uh, Mark's life. But also another aspect here is that he, he quit on Paul. Years later, the apostle Paul and his cousin Barnabas took Mark on a short-term mission trip. In Acts chapter 13, verse 5, he's referred to as an assistant or a helper. And when things got messy... Mark quit. He quit and ended up going back home. I've had enough. I'm going. I'm leaving. And this caused some conflict on the flight deck between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas gave him a second chance, but Paul was not willing to do that. No way. He quit on us. He's going to quit again. I'm not trusting him. But later on, though, Paul calmed down and saw that God loves to redeem and restore those who quit on him. So listen to this amazing statement from Paul in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. He says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. So Mark fled and he quit, but because of God's faithfulness, he got back up and he followed Christ. And I find it interesting that Mark bailed, Peter failed, and yet both got back on mission. And aren't you glad that our past failures don't disqualify us from following Jesus? We've looked at the person of Mark. Now, let's consider the purpose of Mark's account. Do you ever feel angry when you consider what's happening in our culture? you ever feel frustrated at what's going on? And if you don't remember that, just remember what's around your face right now. And you get just all upset. Do you get afraid when you see Christianity becoming increasingly marginalized in our secular society? Do you wonder what is going to be coming down the road for us all? Something very similar, but far worse, of course, was happening to first century Christ followers. After Rome suffered a huge fire that was likely set deliberately by the emperor Nero, Christians were blamed for it. And persecution then was unleashed, and things became very precarious for believers. You were not safe out there, because if they knew you were a Christian, you were the one who caused this problem to our wonderful city, Rome. And so they wanted to punish. Everyone wanted to be, wanted to go after those Christians. So persecution broke out. And it was into this setting that Mark wrote, and, 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 and he's encouraging a minority group of people to live on mission no matter how difficult it becomes. This group that were chased down and persecuted and killed, he's saying, keep going. Don't lose heart. Remember Jesus, he was a servant. He did these things. You do them too. Continue on in him. They needed to be reminded That even if the world seemed like it was falling apart, God would work through their witness. In the same way, we are called to live holy lives in an increasingly hostile environment. We are to continue on. Keep going. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. When we suffer, we must remember that our Savior suffered. And when we get angry and afraid, we must keep serving those around us probably people in your life that just just you you can't get along with. Maybe those are certain people that maybe God is calling you to try to serve in some way. They need the, the love of Christ as well too, shown before them. We need to be those examples. We've gone through a lot these last two years. And there's a lot of frustration build up. There's a lot of anxiety happening. And who better than those who hold the the promise within us of heaven to be able to unleash hope in people's lives, be able to bring the good news, the gospel, to those around us. Yes, it's going to be difficult, but it's needed. We need to let people know. And they need to see it in us as we have navigated these last two years have they seen Christ in you and your attitude and your actions and your words? What have they seen <laughs> of your reactions to what we've gone through? Those of you on this USS Happy Valley, this aircraft carrier, as our society continues to slide towards Sodom, <laughs> following Christ will become increasingly costly. But again, it will be totally worth it. The Gospel of Mark can be read in about 90 minutes. Sit down and read through it. It contains moving and declarative uh, statements that that will help each of us get recalibrated in order to live on mission. If you haven't recently, I encourage you to read through the Gospel of Mark. Familiarize yourself with that. Remind yourself of what's in there by reading through that gospel, preparing then for these Sundays to come as we look at these different forces of Scripture. Mark is not only the shortest and earliest gospel, it also has some very unique features that we'll encounter in these weeks ahead. Mark's gospel is an ideal introduction to the Christian faith. Yeah, it doesn't give a lot of time on the birth of Christ, But it sure gives a lot of time on what Jesus did, how he served, and how he is the Savior. When getting the gospel into other languages, Wycliffe Bible translators often start with Mark because of its brevity and its, its clear message. So let's look now at some of the peculiar things about the gospel of Mark. Mark focuses more on the works of Jesus and less on his words. If you've read the Gospel of Mark, you probably recall that. But Mark records 19 miracles, but only four parables. So if you're looking for parables to Jesus, don't look at the Gospel of Mark. You you might miss some. And each of these parables has has serving as its key theme. Another uh, peculiarity is the language Mark uses is emotional and often abrupt. We read in uh, chapter 8, verse 12, that Jesus sighed deeply, and that he was moved with compassion in chapter 6, verse 34. He marveled at their unbelief in chapter 6, verse 6. And in chapter 3, verse 5, he looked around in anger. (laughs) At the same time, when he saw the rich young ruler in chapter 10, verse 21, we read, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. So there's a lot of descriptive an emotional type of uh, language going on in there. We also see that people had strong reactions to Jesus as well. There were over 15 individuals who decided to follow Christ when coming face to face with Him. And people were, were never passive about Jesus or bored with Him. There's no way to just ignore Him. He either made people angry or astonished or amazed or left them in awe. Some kind of results of that. And people fought against him or they, they put their faith in him. They, the same is true today. They either reject him or they'll receive him. There's really no in-between. Now listen to these 12 reactions that people had to Jesus in, in Scripture here and see if you can remain neutral, all here in the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 1, verse 27, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned them, questioned among themselves. Chapter 4, verse 41, "...and they were filled with great fear." Chapter 5, verse 6, "...he ran and fell down before him." Chapter 5, verses 42 to 43, "...and they were overcome with amazement." Chapter 6, verse 2, "...and many who heard him were astonished." Chapter 6, verse 3, "...and they took offense at him." Chapter 6, verse 50 and 51, "...for they all saw him and were terrified, and they were utterly astounded." Chapter 6, verses 54 and 55, the people ran about the whole region. Verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verses 37, uh, they were astonished beyond measure. Chapter 10, verse 32, and they were amazed and afraid. Chapter 11, verse 18, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished. And chapter 12, verse 17, and they marveled at him. So here's some questions for you. What's your response to Jesus? Have you made the decision to follow Him? And what's your reaction to what He has done for you? We we really can't remain neutral. (laughs) There's one one or another as far as reaction going on. We receive Him or we reject Him. And then we also see here in the Gospel of Mark, a peculiar thing uh, uh, to His Gospel, is uh, Jesus acts quickly to meet needs. He acts quickly to meet needs. We see this in the use of the word immediately or, or straight away. That type of word is used about 42 times in the Gospel of Mark, which conveys a sense of vividness and excitement. If you look at a few examples from chapter 1, verse 10, as Jesus was coming up out of the water, as he was coming up out of the water, it just happened there. Verse 12, at once. Verse 18, at once. Verse 20, without delay. Verse 23, just then. All these action words, situations happening in this gospel. The gospel of Luke, which is much longer, only uses immediately uh, seven times. And we also see that two-thirds of the verses begin with and, to communicate the, the, the speed at which the Savior ministered. Mark has been called a moving picture of the ministry of Jesus as you read through the gospel of Mark. And it, it, it goes to figure because Jesus is all about forward motion, moving forward. I read a little bit more about aircraft carriers and discovered that they are all about forward deployment and presence. Their purpose is to defend and to go forward and also be ready to help during catastrophes. We see clearly in Mark that Jesus was all about forward deployment. And how about you? How about, are you on, on a mission to respond immediately to needs, or is there some mission drift going on in your life? When God prompts you in a, in a certain way for certain people, are you, are you not quite moving forward, maybe even moving back, Holding still, are you ready to be used by God? Moving forward, ready to help and serve. Mark also uses the historical present tense over 150 times. And in, in the original, instead of writing Jesus came, Mark wrote Jesus comes. Mark's all about Jesus says, not Jesus said. And Jesus heals instead of Jesus healed. Jesus did all those things in the past but he's still doing them in the present. And that was the message of Mark. He saved then and he still saves now. Tim Keller, he writes this about it. he says Jesus is not merely a historical figure but a living reality who addresses us today. Mark also holds up the cost of discipleship even though the disciples fell short. <laughs> in Mark chapter 8 verse 34, Familiar verse that we've been over before. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And Jesus continually calls his followers to complete commitment. And when they stumble, he comes alongside and urges them to get back on mission. And Sometimes the disciples question and complain, like in chapter 4, verse 38, says, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Maybe that sounds too close to home for some of us, right? More concerned about us. Wouldn't God know what's going on in our life? Yes, he does. He knows. And here's the thing. We will never hear water down the message of the gospel. Jesus is calling us to take up our cross, which means to go as condemned criminals to our death. Randy Alcorn writes these words about this. He says, following Christ means taking up your cross daily, which means little sacrifices made repeatedly. But aren't you glad that Jesus gives us grace and mercy when we fall down? (laughs) If God can use a denier like Peter and a deserter like Mark, he can use flawed disciples like you and like me. Mark is also a missionary book. Mark omits language that someone living in Rome would not understand. He explains Aramaic words and Jewish customs, as we see in chapter 7. Now, the bottom line is that Mark is all about making the gospel message accessible to those considered outsiders. And we must do uh, the same because it's so easy for us to to just focus on us insiders, the language we know or within the Christian circles you are in and the language you know there, the terminology that's used there. We must do this. We we must be able to uh, make the gospel message accessible to those on the outside as well too because it's so easy for us, again, just to focus on what we have within us here. We must remember that the church is the only organization in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. You ever realize that? Become a member of the church so that we can then benefit the, the non-members of the church You go out and be used by God. Churches tend to, to count their seating capacity. How many people can we fit in here? I know when we went into uh, COVID restrictions uh, and we had to figure out how what, what's the capacity of our sanctuary, how many people can we have in here because of, of the different restrictions and all that, and so we had to figure that out. And so when churches are built, sometimes they they, they consider the seating capacity, capacity. How many people can we get in this, this sanctuary? How big does our building need to be so that can happen? But maybe a better metric would be to count our sending capacity. And I think that's been a metric here for this church. How many people have gone out from here to serve other churches and to serve in whatever way God has them in ministry. And Mark's account opens up with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then he closes in chapter 16, verse 15 with, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're not supposed to be building a mega church here. Although, as we do, if we do, and more people come, more people can hear, and more people can be ready to serve as a group, and our aircraft carrier grows. But that's not the point. The point, I believe, is to be sending people out, to equip. And that's what we're trying to be about in these days. Engaging our community. Allowing for opportunities for our our. our members of our aircraft carrier on deck here to be able to serve in some way, in some fashion. That's why we are going through, and, and, Mark, uh, and Mike went through the evangelism part of, of the Sunday school class, adult Sunday school class, and now I'm leading more into the discipleship type of uh, uh, teaching how to disciple. And so we're going through that, trying, trying to equip. We're going to be looking and trying to figure out Uh, how we might be able to have a um, a seminar or something like that to be able to discipleship. And they have discipleship seminars through our conference that we need to tap into. So I'm looking into those things as well too. Ways to be able to equip our people and how to share their faith, but also too, and how to come alongside someone and help them see what it it looks like to follow Christ. Mark's... uh, Emphasis in, his, in this gospel also too is on the last week of Jesus' life. The events surrounding the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ make up about 40% of Mark's writings. Someone has described Mark's gospel as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. <laughs> Jesus was born in, in order to die. His death was not a tragic accident, but part of God's plan right from the very beginning. Jesus is our selfless servant, and he is our suffering Savior. And he sets the example before us to serve others, to carry our cross, be ready to be used by him. One commentator on Mark tells about a world-renowned uh, scholar of classic literature, Dr. E.V. Rue, and he's known for an incredible translation of Homer's Odyssey uh, into a modern English for uh, Penguin Classics, Uh, an an agnostic his entire life. Penguin publishers approached him at the end of his career and asked him to translate the Gospels. (laughs) Agnostic translating the Gospels? And it raised some eyebrows because people wondered how an agnostic classical scholar could translate Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How's this going to turn out? When Reu's son uh, heard about it, he had a great reaction. He said, It will be interesting to see what Father will make of the four gospels. Then he paused. He said, It will be even more interesting to see what the four gospels make of Father. <laughs> and he didn't, he didn't have to wander very long when he translated uh, when he translated them, he came face to face with Christ and became a committed Christian because of it. Gospel changes people. God's word changes people. And a story is a testimony to the transforming power of God's word. So through all of this, I trust also too that we will be transformed by God's word in the gospel of Mark when we go through these Sundays ahead on and in through into Easter to be able to understand uh, who Jesus is and, and his plan for your life. And his plan for you in in journeying through the Christian walk. What does that look like? And I trust that through these Sundays to come that we'll have some eye-opening moments. Some moments that will help us uh, see something new in this Gospel of Mark. Let's go back to the metaphor of a church as an aircraft carrier just for a moment. I also learned about life on a carrier and about the importance of teamwork, where everyone must do their job. If a shipmate doesn't open the the, the right valve, someone could die. If orders aren't followed, planes could crash. Everyone has a job to do and must do it faithfully if the mission is to be accomplished. No one is just along for the ride or to see the sights. The key is for every member of the crew to always be ready and to maintain high up tempo. Mark's gospel will will equip us to live live on mission. Let's break out of of our patterns of maybe self-absorption and self-centered living and serve like never before so people would be drawn to the Savior. The night before Jesus died, he gathered his shipmates for a meal and for some final mission calibration. It's likely that the Last Supper was held in the home of Mark's mom. Jesus dined with his disciples before he deployed them. It's interesting that he chose community right before he died. Once again, he demonstrated that he is a servant by serving his team during their last meal together, and then he died as their savior, urging them to live on mission by by completing his mission. And the word commission comes from the world of, of shipbuilding. A commissioned ship is one deemed ready for service. When a ship is ready to sail, it is placed into active service, and sent on mission. Jesus desires for us to commune with him right now so that we can be calibrated and and commissioned to live on mission for him. It's not about our comfort, but all about our commitment to Christ. So let's use this time to get off any kind of mentality of a cruise ship and jump aboard the carrier under the command of our Captain Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Making sure that we do our part so that we move forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for your message. Thank you, Lord, for the Gospel of Mark. And as we journey through this, I pray that we would have our eyes open and, Lord, that we would be affected in our our lives by your word. And, Lord, as we look today to draw close to your table this morning, I pray that you would speak to our hearts about the need to be close to you, the need to go deeper in our relationship with you, Lord, thank you for the example you set forth for us. And as we come together, and take communion together, Lord, that we'd be reminded of how much you love us and what you've done for us so that we also too can be in heaven with you one day. Lord, thank you. For not only that, but also to how you provide a way to live the abundant life. And help us, Lord, to draw close to that. Lord, thank you for your presence with us. And thank you, Lord, for this time we're going to take now of communion and being reminded again of how good you are to us. In your name we pray. Amen. So I draw our attention to Mark's account of this meal. If you are online and, and you, are, you have your elements ready to go for communion, you want to get those ready right now. And in Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 24, portion of scripture there that Mark is an account of this. He says, and as they were eating, he took bread And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. The bread that you have here today is a representation of Jesus' body, broken for you, beaten for you because of our sins. He went through everything. He paid that price. And this bread represents his body. And for us to take in remembrance of what he's done for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for the bread of life. Now, we, that we, don't, we, we don't need to feed on the physical food only, but we need to feed on spiritual food your word, our time with you. Help us, Lord, to fill up on that. But thank you how you've offered that to us. And I pray, Lord, that as we take this bread together, that we take it with glad, sincere hearts, ready to be used by you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's take the bread together. Also in that same portion of scripture of Mark, chapter 14. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And so this cup that holds the juice represents Jesus' blood. Jesus' blood that was shed on that cross. As Scripture tells us, that needed to happen in order for there to be forgiveness of sins. And Jesus being the perfect Lamb of God without sin was the perfect sacrifice. To have that happen and His blood to be shed on that cross, then there was forgiveness of sins. And as we take this this juice together, let us be reminded of what, what Jesus has done for us and the power that is in the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Lord Jesus, thank you again for your sacrifice and thank you, Lord, for your love for us. You could have come down off that cross. You could have chosen to go your own way, but you chose Father's will. Jesus, we're so thankful that you stayed there. Your love for us kept you there. Thank you for that. And as we take this juice together, I pray that we would take it with glad and sincere hearts and reminded of the hope we have in heaven. Thank you, Jesus, that one day, We'll be face to face with you. But until then. We, re- we remain available. To be used by you in other people's lives. To let them know about the hope that they can have in heaven as well. So use us Lord for your glory. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Let's take the juice together. Annie and Dawn. And Ron, <laughs> you are got to come on up. You're going to join us, leading us in the last few songs. This next song, I trust, can remind us again of God's love for us and how that cross is the is, is wonderful cross in our life. The horrible thing that Romans have, have used in history have become the beautiful thing in our lives because the cross points to our salvation. So as we sing these songs, I pray that your attention will be drawn to Jesus and what he has done for you.